Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Boss Hero Collector and the brand new official Star Trek Universe Collection. Get Star Trek Picard's La Sirena for only $9.95 with free shipping when you sign up today at HeroCollector.com slash Star Trek Universe slash Mission Log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 394, Statistical Probabilities. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we study intently all the information we can about a single episode of Star Trek, scribbling through copious notes to come up with our take on the morals, meanings, and messages within. This week, statistical probabilities. The one where maybe they're right, or maybe they're wrong, or maybe they're right and there's nothing you can do about it. But maybe you should anyway. But first up, I will boldly predict that John will have trivia before this week's recap. Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. but I will boldly predict that you will have contact information to share before that. And your prediction will come true right now. Mission Log is a conversation about the stories of Star Trek. So that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. If you're so inclined, give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We'll get back to trivia and John in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor this week, Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now, John, many of our listeners know that we have an incredible love for tiny starships. Well, this is no different because we have a whole new offering, and they are officially authorized by CBS Studios. The official Star Trek Universe collection is available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. This brand new and meticulously curated collection brings together iconic starships and vessels from the all-new Star Trek series, including Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, and even the upcoming Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Now, these larger size models are at the same scale as the ships in Star Trek Discovery's Starships collection and are made of the same die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials that all Eagle Moss Hero Collector Starships are made of. They're also hand-painted with reference to the actual CG models used in production. 
And Norman, we should just mention really quickly, like what's in this collection? Uh, La Serena, which I'll get to in a moment, the uh, Zheng He, and my one of my favorites, I think, overlooked here, the newly reimagined Romulan Bird of Prey. Uh, mm-hmm. So cool looking, the classic Bird of Prey. Just some great looking ships here in this collection. So definitely give them a look. HeroCollector.com slash Star Trek Universe slash Mission Log. Each ship will come with a presentation stand plus a 16-page collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of the technology on board. Be among the first to subscribe to the collection now, again at herocollector.com slash Star Trek Universe slash Mission Log to receive your first ship, Star Trek Picard's signature ship, La Sirena. For only $9.95 with free shipping, this is the striking red and white Kaplan F-17 speed freighter, captained by Cristobal Rios and hired by Jean-Luc Picard to house his ragtag crew on their search for Dr. Bruce Maddox and Soji Asha. And and by the way, a couple of notes there, Norman. Uh, you and I both think that the paint job on that looks like Eddie Van Halen's guitar. Uh, oh. You are not wrong there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, a little nod to, say... Jackson Pollock. Yeah, good call. And uh, as soon as Picard came out, I looked at it and it's like, I want that ship. I want Eagle Moss to make that ship. And now they are. And so much more. And then after you receive La Sirena, there is so much more because each month after you will receive a new Star Trek Universe ship and magazine delivered directly to your door for only $49.95 plus $4.95 for shipping. But wait, there's more. As a subscriber, you're also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, including a collector's binder, the Speed of Light plaque, and the special edition Inquiry class, the USS Toussaint. And you may cancel your subscription at any time, but I'm not exactly sure why you would want to because these ships are amazing. Full details can be found at www.herocollector.com slash Star Trek Universe slash Mission Log. Now weighing the statistical probabilities of what's going to happen next, I can 100% guarantee with certainty that it is now time for trivia. You're so good. You're so good. Yes. So trivia for today's episode. We have a story written by Pam Pietroforte, another great example of Star Trek stories coming from everywhere. Pam just happened to be an intern on DS9 and ended up with this story credit and one more coming up toward the end of this very season. The teleplay is by Rene Echeverria, but like all DS9 stories, there is influence from everyone else too. Iris Stephen Bear had wanted to explore the ramifications of that big reveal of Bashir's genetic enhancements, and this was one way to do it. Rene worked on the script drafts and made some pretty big changes along the way, like having the four visitors come in as essentially patients for Bashir. Earlier, they had been drafted as a serious think tank whose abilities were being used by Starfleet. The episode is directed by Anson Williams. Here we have the first Star Trek episode directed by Williams, who was already very well known to audiences as an actor at this time. You probably know that he was Richie's friend Potsy Weber on Happy Days all the way from the beginning in 1974 and stayed with that show for all of its 11 seasons. Now, he didn't direct any on that show, but he did start his directing career in the mid-1980s and has worked pretty much in parallel uh, in front of and behind the camera ever since. 
He directs one more episode of DS9, and then we will catch him on Voyager for a few more. Uh, Let's see, some references in the show. Uh, Singh el-Bashir, not a real 15th century poet, but that was a good way to do that very Star Trek thing where you throw out a historic name with some conviction and then let the audience figure out which one is real and which one is fake. We also have Blue Danube, uh, probably the most famous waltz of all time, written by Johann Strauss. If you're a sci-fi movie fan, you probably know that it was that other great piece of classical music used in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The dance scene was choreographed by Laura Bear, Ira's wife, and was originally a bit more grand. Uh, But like a lot of actors, these actors really don't dance, so that scene was cut short. I'm going to save some other references for later in the show, but there are a good number of them in this episode. But let's get to guest stars. Well, we welcome back Jeffrey Combs as Wayoon and Casey Biggs as Damar. Then we have four actors who really are the focus of the episode. There's Michael Keenan as Patrick. He is best known as the mayor from Picket Fences. And we did mention him way back in Mission Log 253, because he was the governor of that Scottish theme park colony in the TNG episode Sub Rosa. Michael passed away in April of 2020 at the age of 80. Faith Saley plays the quiet one, Serena. Now, in addition to a ton of guest-starring roles in Faith's career, she is a frequent panelist on the NPR show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, She also recently put her one-woman show Approval Junkie on stage based on her book of the same title. And uh, I I just, I had to take this directly from her bio, uh, which is on her website, because I love it so much. Here we go. Faith attended Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, where her fellow scholars went on to become governors and Pulitzer Prize winners, while she got beamed up on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and landed on a collectible trading card worth hundreds of cents. Next up, Lauren is played by Hilary Shepard, and we have actually seen her before in a very different look. She was a Benzite, briefly, in the DS9 episode The Ship, she is probably best known for playing Divatox, a foil for the Power Rangers in Power Rangers in Space and Power Rangers Turbo. Interestingly, she and Daryl Hannah created a handful of board games and holds trademarks for those and other products alongside her partner in those ventures. Finally, the fast-talking Jack is played by Tim Ransom. About time Tim showed up on Star Trek. If you go back to the beginning of DS9, he was one of the actors up for the role of Dr. Bashir. His first professional film credit is in the 1985 film Desperately Seeking Susan, and a number of TV guests and recurring roles followed. He was even in the pilot for The X-Files, but the scene was cut only to be restored on home video releases. More recently, you may have caught him in Handmaid's Tale or on the new Perry Mason. We may not be done with these characters just yet. All four of these guest actors will be back for one more time on DS9. There is a very high probability that John is about to let us know what happened in this episode.
prologue. Dr. Bashir has visitors. A representative from Starfleet has brought along four very unique individuals who all share something in common with the doctor. They, too, have had genetic enhancements. But unlike the doctor, they've had a more difficult time assimilating into normal society. There's Jack, who is intense and talks a mile a minute. There's Patrick, who is older but seems to have a real emotional vulnerability. There's Serena, who is quiet to the point of being non-responsive. And there's Lauren, who is seductive. Bashir is there to meet and greet and study them for a few weeks while their usual Starfleet contact, Dr. Lowe's, takes a break. Act 1. Their first encounter is a challenge. Dr. Bashir enters the darkened room where his visitors are staying, and Jack immediately begins antagonizing him. It's little stuff at first to throw him off his guard, but Bashir maintains his calm even as it gets more serious. Part of the division among them is that people who are genetically altered are barred from serving in Starfleet, but the doctor has gotten away with it. Jack, in particular, is resentful that the rest of them live in an institution, while Bashir has a life where he can pass as normal. It even gets historical when Bashir defends the idea that some of the laws barring those who are genetically altered from certain jobs make sense, seeing as how there was a little thing called the eugenics war way back when. All of this only riles up Jack Moore, who lets loose a torrent while letting Bashir barely get in a word. With enough of it, the doctor excuses himself to go have dinner with his friends, and that's interesting too. In Captain Sisko's quarters, Bashir tries to express what he's just witnessed. He was lucky that his genetic enhancements were done by someone who is skilled. These four have serious side effects that prevent them from being part of accepted society. Everyone has an opinion. Chief O'Brien makes light of the mutants being better than everyone else, which would make people like him look bad. Worf and Odo are a bit more serious about how genetic manipulation could spark parents to race to keep up with others. In general, everyone seems to be on board with the idea that mutants shouldn't have exactly the same rights as everyone else. Oh, except for you, Bashir. You're one of the exceptions. At least that's what Worf has settled on. Changing the subject, the crew's minds are also on the speech that Gull, yes, that's right, Gull, Damar will be making soon. They're interrupted, though, by Jack, who has somehow broken into the station's communications system and wants to see Bashir now. The problem is that he and the other guests are severely irritated by a high-pitched noise that only they and nobody else on the station can hear. Bashir says he can hear it, too. Being a mutant like them and Jack threatens to kill Serena if he doesn't do something about it. Act 2. Bashir promises that Chief O'Brien is on his way. Now will Jack kindly leave Serena alone and not break her neck? He does, and Serena, still unresponsive, just walks away as if nothing has happened. The chief arrives and doesn't hear anything, but the complaint is legit as his tricorder reveals. Patrick even has a friendly suggestion for the culprit, a plasma flow that's out of sync, and you know what? He's right. As the chief finishes up, everyone's attention turns to the monitor where Guldemar's speech is broadcast. It's full of bloviating about the power of Cardassia and the Dominion, but the special guests see right through it. 
Patrick, Lauren, and Jack see Damar as a pretender to the throne who is racked with guilt, who murdered, and who is manipulated by a dark prince. None of them knew anything about Cardassia or Dukat or Weyoun. They just inferred it all from watching the speech in which Damar insists the Federation meet to discuss peace terms. Bashir reports their remarkable insights to the senior staff and ops, and his timing is good because Sisko just got word that Wayun and Damar are on their way to DS9 to negotiate with him. Interesting. And Bashir wonders if he can get a copy of their conversation to Jack and the others. Why, yes, Sisko says. Wayun has insisted that the negotiations be recorded in the interest of transparency. Bashir brings the good news back to his special charges, and they are excited at the idea of the story of this pretender king having another chapter. Act 3. Right on time, Wayun and Damar show up at the station, and their first talk with Sisko is recorded, perfect for a hollow suite playback with Jack, Lauren, Patrick, and Serena. They call it out as a sham right away. Yes, Wayun and Damar make it sound like they're being generous, but you have to read between the lines. Jack just so happens to have learned to speak Dominionese since the morning, while Patrick notices their body language. They're up to something. Specifically, they're avoiding the Cabrel system, and this tactic is apparent to everyone watching. The Dominion negotiators look generous, but it's all about the long game with them. Give up something now for an advantage that might be years away. Serena quietly has drawn out a molecule on a pad, which Bashir takes to Cisco. One of those planets in the Cabrel system is worthless, just covered in some fungus. But that can be processed into an ingredient in Ketracel White. That's a huge advantage for the Dominion, a supply in the Alpha Quadrant to last indefinitely. Cisco says they can't have it then, and he'll change his recommendation to Starfleet, except there's more. This small team has done more projections. If the Dominion doesn't get the Cabral system now, they'll attack, leading to even worse casualties. Projecting out even further, Bashir's team have deduced that the Romulans will eventually break their non-aggression pact. It's a lot to take in, but Bashir assures Sisko that their calculations are correct. In fact, their method allows them to be more accurate the further into the future they project. Sisko is all ears, and will take this knowledge to Starfleet. Which means it's time for celebration. Patrick breaks out the party hats while Jack pours the champagne, and a waltz plays for Bashir and Lauren to dance. Serena doesn't participate. Chief O'Brien crashes the party to replace the power coupling in the room, and when Patrick tries to include the chief in their celebration, well, the chief is very dismissive, which upsets Patrick. With all of them being pretty perceptive, they call out the chief. The power coupling doesn't need replacement right now. O'Brien just wanted to see his friend. And that's okay. Lauren says they should go along, as they do, to Quark's bar. Time for a game of darts. Bashir tells O'Brien that their visitors really like the chief. He's so uncomplicated. Yeah, this little bit of a dig kicks off a conversation that reveals Bashir really likes them. And he is one of them, which makes him different in some ways from his friend. Just to be nice, he'll keep throwing his darts from farther away. 
The response from Starfleet has been very positive. They are so impressed with the work done by this team that they allow access to classified materials about their battle readiness. The news doesn't go over well, though. In the meantime, they've been working on some new projections, and this time it reveals the inevitable. The Federation, in time, will lose to the Dominion. There is no choice but to surrender. Act 4. The news does not sit well with Sisko. Even as Bashir spells out that by surrendering they can save 900 billion lives, and that generations from now will rise up to overtake the Dominion, Sisko is not having it. He will not recommend to Starfleet that they surrender, because how could he? They're just supposed to give up? No. Bashir shares the findings with O'Brien, and the reaction is the same. The chief won't accept it either. Yes, he understands, and no, he doesn't agree that they should surrender. Maybe that makes him dumb. Or maybe it makes Bashir more than a little short-sighted. The doctor takes out his frustrations on the Dabo table, much to Quark's chagrin. No matter how well he plays, no matter how much his luck holds out, the house will always win. The news doesn't sit well with the very people who made these projections. Jack and Lauren scheme something a little crazier. If they took strategic information to the Dominion, they could, in effect, shorten the war. A few billion deaths rather than 900 billion. Bashir objects, but Jack punches him out. Next step, contact the Dominion. Act 5. Jack, Lauren, and Patrick have anonymously set up a meeting with Wayun and Damar, but they left Bashir tied to a chair in their room alone with Serena. He begs Serena to let him go, that the lives of billions of people are at stake, and at the very least, Jack's life is at stake here too, and she'll never see him again if they are successful. He knows that she has some sort of feeling for Jack. So when the three of them arrive where they think the meeting will happen, there's Bashir waiting for them. Jack is stunned. He thought he had it all worked out, but Bashir says he didn't account for everything, and now they will kindly go back to their quarters. On the inside of where that meeting was supposed to take place, there's Wayun and Damar getting frustrated that their mysterious guests haven't arrived yet. The door opens, and it's Odo. He says, they're not coming, and these two just play dumb, real dumb. As for Jack and the others, Sisko has decided not to press charges, even though they were this close to committing treason. No, they'll go back to the Institute. Jack might be righteously indignant that he could have stopped the deaths of billions of people, but Bashir reminds him that his plans were thwarted exactly because he didn't account for every variable. He didn't account for Serena, and she was right there in the room with him. She is proof enough that one person can change the course of history. So maybe there is some hope after all. Back in Quark's bar, Bashir is joined by Chief O'Brien. The doctor is lost in his thoughts about the hubris he and the others had, thinking that they could predict the future. But O'Brien reminds him that they haven't won the war yet. So maybe what happened has shaken them all out of complacency. Back at the Dabo table, Bashir has a new attitude. He'll bet big because sometimes when the odds are stacked against you, you have to act boldly. And he wins. Just then the call comes that a transport ship about to leave is holding up for some passengers who haven't shown up yet. 
They want to say goodbye to the doctor. So in their room, Jack is still mad. Lauren says goodbye with a kiss for Bashir. Patrick just wants him to come visit someday. As for Serena, she actually smiles a little when Bashir tells her that she did the right thing and that Jack will understand someday. That brings Jack out of hiding, and he asks Bashir if they come up with some new strategies on how to beat the Dominion, would he listen? Bashir can think of nothing he'd like to hear better. With that, the four beam out. The end. Wonderful recap there, John. I know there's a lot of plot to get through, and a lot of important plot to get through. And I know we're going to discuss some here in the observations, and we're obviously going to get to our discussion points. But very first thing that I saw is, you know how we always make observations about the pads and how they're kind of static looking and they should be a little bit more dynamic. Did you notice the reflective holographic tape that was on the bottom of the pad? Like every now and then. Every now and then they have a little bit of that holographic tape and it just it brings a little life. Yeah, yeah it looked like uh, kind of like a shorthand for a digital effect readout, but I thought yeah. it kind of worked. Yeah. And I was I was really obsessed with the size of that pad. That was like one of the larger pads that I saw. But one thing that I was like, well, maybe you could have done the take a little bit differently is when Jack trashed yeah. the pad and raked it over Dr. Karen Lowe's hand. You would think that it would hurt more. Yeah, that drawing blood and like embedding fragments and shards of glass into and, her And hand. she even turns down Dr. Bashir when he says to, like, he'll take her to the infirmary. And she's like, no, nah, I'm fine. I'm yeah. like, really? I mean, I was hoping that yeah. in her quarters she has some sort of a medical kit because that would be the first thing on my mind. <laughs> Yeah, be like, yeah, I'll just grab this yeah. napkin here and wrap it my. It sort hand of goes back it. to what we've said before on the show, which is that every time in a movie or a TV show when they're trying to be dramatic, like doing a blood ritual, like I'm going to cut my hand, like no, that hurts, <laughs> and it, it will hurts. continue to hurt for a long time. <laughs> so yeah, but I understand like why they had to go that far because Jack was yes, yeah, totally. Well, most yeah. of the time, actually, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I know we're going to get into this in the next segment, but I, I just, you know, right away, there are some lines that just made me go, wow, uh, like Jack saying, people like us are barred from serving in Starfleet. And I just thought, wow, wow, we're, we're going to be learning about all kinds of rules that we didn't know existed up until now. And, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. But then there's, uh, there's Bashir dropping in with the people like us did try and take over. Hey, glad we got a shout out to the eugenics war. Nice, uh, nice call back yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So in Cisco's quarter later, uh, did did they always have that tri dimensional? Yeah, chest okay. Set so there? it's moved around a bit on set, but we just got like a lovely shot of it there in the background. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, that thing is super oversized. Cool. I mean, it was yeah. really nice. So hey, a- as long as we're uh, talking about some of the references, and uh, like I said, there's at least a couple more that I want to get to there. But for the grace of God, go I. So says Bashir at the uh, dinner party. And what's interesting, I have heard that term so many times before, as I'm sure most people in our audience, so I had to look it up. And it's interesting to me that it isn't really known for sure where the phrase originated, but popularly it is attributed to John Bradford, who in the 16th century was a religious reformer who ran afoul of Queen Mary I. He supposedly said it when he saw a prisoner being led to his execution. 
but then he finally went that way himself and he was burned at the stake. So <laughs> there but for the grace of God go I, uh, except for the last time when he did go that way. Yeah, not Ouch. good. Not, not a good day for John Bradford. That must have hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even though I don't have uh, the, the abilities of the, the quote-unquote mutants, and I, I just wanted to clarify, I know that they were labeled mutants like in the episode, but they weren't necessarily a natural genetic mutation. They were a genetically enhanced yeah. mutation. So, you know, there are right. the two differences, like the X-Men right. mutants. Uh, all that aside... I really like the way that, that, that Casey Biggs played into the the role of this pretender when he was giving his speech because you know that Goldicott is now out of the picture. He's obviously being he being Damar is obviously being uh puppeteered by Wei Yun or the Dominion. Yeah. And but there's the one thing though that's still very Ducat esque or Cardassian esque when at the end he said, For my sons, for all our sons. And Zial is rolling uh, in her very fresh grave. Oh, too soon, Norman. Too soon. <laughs> yeah. What is with it? Like, they just, like, Goldicott's like, I gotta have my daughter with me. I gotta have her next to me. Yada, yada, yada. And it's just back to for our uh, Yeah, yeah. Now, look, what I will say, what a great scene to rewatch. Because, you know, the first time I'm watching it, I'm watching it for what uh, the... The genetically altered group are telling us is happening. The second time I watched it was really all about focusing on Casey Biggs's performance because he is mm -hmm. revealing so much to us, the audience, now that we're in on it. And I just have to say, what a gift to hand to an actor. You know, we talked about his first appearance way back and his evolution in the show and how he thought, like, oh, I'm I'm just some guy who has like one line and I push a button. Well, look how far he's come. And like I said, that gift, that gift as an actor to be handed this incredibly complex change uh, by the writers is just awesome. Fantastic to watch him work in this episode. Although I, I will say that during that scene when he's giving the speech, I, I just kept thinking like uh, this was a total Dana Troy moment. <laughs> you know, we, we just need mm -hmm. her there to say, I, I sense he is unsure of himself. Done done that's all we need mm, yeah right yeah i do wonder though you know we, we keep coming back to that room that they're in uh three weeks in a sparse cargo room like does does anyone at starfleet ever think like hey they could have their own rooms uh maybe maybe with windows like i you know if this is what they get on ds9 i hate to think what they have back at the starfleet institution of some sort that they're a part of well, again, that kind of plays into the, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the the prejudice that whoever on the station yeah. housed them there has yeah. for them. But we'll get yeah, to that yeah, we, we will, yeah. On. And and yeah. why didn't Bashir speak up? Uh, maybe we'll come to that too. I, I mm. do. I really like the conceit of the high pitched noise that only the mutants can hear, and I like Bashir using it as some leverage with them as well. Just as a scripting point, though. Did it seem out of character to you that Jack threatens to kill Serena over it? Like, I know that he's volatile. I know that he's high strung. But that specific moment just felt like, uh, well, okay, we need to get us something to get to the commercial break, and get the audience to come back. So maybe he threatens to kill her? You know, at, at first mm -hmm. it did. But then in, in um, 
my subsequent rewatches so to to find more uh-huh. of the details. I think it actually falls very much in line with with the consistency of his character because I think much like a child throwing a temper tantrum, he almost wants to be mm. caught in his in in his challenging the authority figure. And Bashir, to his credit, always he always calls his yes. bluff, and Jack always yeah. backs down. Good point mm-hmm. because. No one in that troop of Jack and Patrick and uh, Serena and uh, Lauren, they don't stand up to him. So he gets away with everything. But as soon as somebody does, he's like, yeah, you got me. Yeah. Yep. You know what I really like, though? Um, again, with, uh, with the, the uh, advancements of what they're doing on some practical effects, I really did like in the map room when they were doing their negotiating. Well, actually, it was in the holographic uh, recreation. When, when Damar used the the screen to show the yes. difference uh, in the border after yeah. the negotiation, it changed uh, midway. I was like, Hey, they're doing stuff. It's yeah, not it, it was screen. subtle. It was small, but boom, there it was. You, you could absolutely, here's the before and here's the after. They, they, they the did. They tech the tech scene. right there in front of us all. Ooh, ooh, another reference, Henry the fourth by uh, Willie, the shakes, Willie Shakespeare. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. So good. So mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Just a ton of great lines in here. I, I, I know. Willie shakes. Where does that come from? Can't Willy even shakes. remember, but uh, but but there you go. Somebody can reference my yeah. reference now. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, I, I love. Uh, there's so many good Damar moments here, but Damar to Kira. We're on a mission of peace, Major. Maybe he should get in the mood, <laughs> which is just uh, talking about Cisco. You know, when she says uh, Kira says he's not in the mood for it. I mean, just. How much better than a Cardassian basically saying, like, you better be happy. This is a happy thing. Any other reaction will not be tolerated. Right. <laughs> you know? It was one of those kind of, like, asides. Remember the episode where, where I guess it was um, Lita, like, walked by him? And he's like, yeah, I have nothing to hide. Obviously, you don't. I was like, whoa. Yeah, hey-o. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good Snappy moment. repartee yep. there, yep. Damar. You know what I, I really liked, though? I, I really liked when Jack changed the holo program to to see Wei Yun speaking in his native tongue to find the nuances so cool. in what he was saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the first time that we actually saw Jeffrey perform Wei Yun speaking? What what did you call it before? Dominionese. Yes, yes. And, and it's funny. Yeah. Now, in an interview, Jeffrey Combs said that he thought it was, what did he call it? Vortaese or something. But but technically in the script, it's Dominionese. And he said it's just so hard to learn because you're just getting the phonetics and you don't know the meaning of it. Obviously, when you're an actor, you're trying to be in context in the moment and the words flow more naturally. But here it's just nonsense but he's gotta he's mm-hmm. gotta sell it so he knew it in english obviously but then had to get the same kind of cadence and and information across with dominionese yeah, he, he sells does it, but yeah. it's jeffrey yeah. so he, he always, always sells it yeah. Right? yeah now okay I, I i i parked this note here because i feel like there are so many other big things to talk about in this episode that we'll get to in the next segment but i couldn't let this go there is a huge glaring problem with this episode that, that yeah, like normally it would go into the next segment. And that is, this episode blatantly shows another reason why I have such a problem with the deus ex machina from Sacrifice of Angels. 
And I know, you know, because we read all of your comments and all of your emails, some people agree very strongly that that was a problem. Some people think very strongly that it was not a problem. And you all have good reasons why. I still feel very much that it was a problem. And that was reinforced for me here because part of the calculation then that these brilliant minds have to make involves something along the lines of, oh, wait, we can just go ask our godlike aliens to change the inevitable outcome. I, I mean, that that's part of the history now of the Dominion War. Go into the wormhole, right. talk to the aliens, poof, the bad guys are all gone. And if you can do it once, theoretically, you yeah. can do it again, and that has to be part of the record. Well, it's definitely a, a back pocket strategy for mm -hmm. sure. And, you know, for the record as, as well is that, remember, Cisco did not go into the wormhole specifically to ask the wormhole aliens, the prophets, for Correct. their assistance. Correct. They, yeah. by the necessity of protecting the Cisco for their own reasons and maybe even staring into the orb of time, which mm -hmm. they created, that they had to make the choice at that time to do it. But it wasn't Cisco's yeah. strategy. And I don't want to belabor that point because we already did that in Sacrifice of Angels. But I see what you're saying here. And I have a little bit more to expound on when it comes to Cisco's decision about staring statistical data in the yeah, face okay. and making All a right. decision by it. All right. I mean, speaking of which, it goes right into my observation. I really like how Sid acted with, with Avery when, when Cisco just summarily dismisses this second set of statistical data that proves that the Federation is going to lose. I mean, I always love it when Sid gets really indignant and, and yeah. obstinate about his, I guess it's his position here. Like, he knows that statistically he's right, but there are obviously other factors that, that turn this into a little bit more of a Star trek mm -hmm. learning moment. Yeah, totally. Oh, man, and, and I know that we're, we're always so full of praise for Jeffrey and for Casey, the, the, the Wayun Demar. I mean, the, the Wayun Ducat dynamic was so good, and in this episode they threw all of that energy at Wayun and Damar. Uh, but Wayun saying to Damar, don't be like your predecessor, second-guessing my every move. This was such a good little scene between Wayun and Damar, but it was so awesome to see the writing take a turn to give us a new shade of Wayun and Wayun able to exploit this new dynamic with his new Cardassian puppet. Because it, you could just write them all the same, and just kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, Wayne's still doing the same job, and now you just have a new guy in this other job. But they took every advantage here to really play with the idea that Damar is a very different person, and his motivations and his backstory are very different from Dukat's. And you get all of that across in that very short scene. I mean, Wayne's a professional handler of sorts. Yeah. So he has to he he has to pivot to whoever's personality is in front of him. He, and, uh, he's yeah, the A&R right. guy for the Dominion. <laughs> yeah, he's like, hold, hold yeah. on. He's like, uh, you know, before you talk to these people, I need to talk to you first because, you know, this is yeah. how things work here yeah. at Space Nine, you know? <laughs> so. <Yeah>. Uh, <laughs> maybe it was me or, or maybe it's the way that Colm played it, but he did a good job selling, like, how... I think how deeply hurt he really was at that uncomplicated... Yeah, totally fair. ...line totally that was thrown fair. at him. Yeah, yeah. Because that also kind of like, uh, it, it triggers back to when he was talking about, you know, hey, you know, these genetically enhanced people, you know, they threaten a person like me, you know, who's trying to just get by on the sheer hard work and work ethic, you know, that I, that I bring to the table. But if they're 
gifted. Well, gifted engineers are going to put me out of a job, which brings mm-hmm. up another point. Why would he feel threatened about losing his job when you don't really have to worry about making I, money? You just see, have to do the job. You, could, you just go open up. He just go open up a shop on his own, and he doesn't have to worry about money for it. He can just do fun things. He, he could he could restore old cars, and I bet he'd be perfectly happy. He should open a kayak <laughs> shop. Yeah, that's that's, what that's exactly do. what he should do. <laughs> I do love when when Sid just really kind of uh, gets into the role and 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 really chews up the scene where he's talking about how the house always wins at the Dabo table. Because when you really think about it, that's where his frustration is. He's like, "Know what? We can we can." chew the numbers up and get to the nth degree of the most precise decimal probability. But in the end, it's just a, it's a, it's a toss up, right? Because you can't factor in everything like, Oh, say, I don't know, Cisco summarily ignoring all of our data because right. That's the house winning because of he, he's not in charge. So he has to appease the house for as much criticism as Bashir took in the early seasons of DS nine, which I I think a, a lot of it very legitimate. It's so nice to see when his character has some deep running emotions and very well justified by what would matter to Bashir. Like th- this is this thing where, where he's using his gifts of superiority. He's using his insights. His heart is in the right place and he cares deeply about what's going on. Not only is he concerned about the outcome and the, the overwhelming downside of this, but just sort of the isolation of being someone who understands this among very few. So I, I thought, yes, again, whenever we get to see that out of Bashir, it's just so good. And finally, I just want to leave us with this line uh, that Odo says to Wayun. Yes, I know. I honor you with my presence. I can't wait to use that in real life. I see the spin-off series pitch already. O'Brien, an uncomplicated man with surprisingly complicated pants. We'll get back to crunching the numbers in a moment with statistical probabilities, but first, let's talk about something very exciting with Patreon. Yeah, uh, so new features at our Patreon page. You know, we don't spend a lot of time on the show talking about Patreon, uh, but we are so grateful for those of you who have joined us over there. And uh, we want to welcome a lot of you who have not joined us yet. Uh, Now, there is new merchandise that I'm excited about. Norman, you and I spent a while coming up with new support levels and uh, some new sort of custom merchandise to fit that that will all be fulfilled by Patreon. So that's just one thing that people can look forward to. What else? Well, we've uh, talked about this and we've wanted to make sure that the the new refit of Patreon, if you will, we will give the the user experience that that wonderful long scene of you know when Kirk was like flying around the Enterprise in the motion picture and seeing it for the very <laughs> first time me again. For nine minutes, loving yeah. me uh-huh. exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of that's the kind of care and attention that we took yeah. to taking care of these new Patreon uh, these new Patreon offerings, and we want to make sure that uh, we're giving you the content that you deserve as our supporters, and it's the right content with uh, different varieties of what we're going to bring to you. And of course, we have uh, at at the very base level, we have our our live show that we do once a month that will always be there for you. So 
you're going to have to take a look at Patreon and take a look at the offerings that suit you best. But I think that you'll be very surprised at what we've been able to decide for you. Yeah. So yeah, you get those live hangouts plus the unedited, unexpurgated, uh, long form of the recording session that we post. So you get your episodes a week in advance of when the regular show goes out. And then uh, new feedback opportunities. So we can actually chat about the topics from Mission Log episodes with you directly in an all new format coming to Patreon. So check it out, patreon.com slash mission log. And of course, more of that content coming based on what you want. Again, check it out, patreon.com slash mission log. Now, I'm excited about talking about this episode, Norman, because I feel like there are just so many directions we could go. <laughs> we, we could, you know, we do our show here. We could, uh, we could stop. We could come back tomorrow night and we could do it all over again and come up with completely different topics to really focus on. But while there, there's just some like right out of the gate, I feel like deserve our attention, like how does this episode square with the otherwise somewhat idyllic 24th century future? You know, we know that not everything is perfect. Even like, even if you go back to TNG, yes, life on the Enterprise might have been approaching perfect, but they certainly encountered people who were living under the Federation who did not have things so cushy. But there's a disturbing idea that is brought up in this episode. And I think we don't necessarily give it enough attention in the episode itself like what do we do with people who don't quite fit in now there are some people in star trek who have the advantage of saying like well life on earth isn't for me i'm gonna go to say a scottish theme park planet and that'll be my life or other people on earth might say well i don't want a life in starfleet but I can open up a, a Creole restaurant because that's what I'm into. Cool. And they can have a go at that because all of their basic needs are taken care of in this future. What we have here is a situation where people are literally put away and hidden from the rest of society. And I'm not talking about criminals. I'm not talking about people who have done things so egregious that they can't be trusted out in the real world. But I mean, even just within the context of the episode, just the narrow actions of this episode, uh, the first thing Bashir does is just leave them in a room so he can have dinner with his friends. Mm. <laughs> and, and I get that, that we're off to a little bit of a rocky start, but I, I just kept thinking like, well, it, is anybody going to sit down to dinner with them? It, when, when does the attempt come to really have a personal relationship with them. And I, and I know that, you know, dramatically this is part of the build of the episode is they have to find that common ground. But it seems like they're really behind the eight ball when it comes to finding that common ground with all the things they have done or haven't done before. And we explore that a little bit more in the dinner scene about what is the prevailing attitude toward people who are, quote unquote, different you know, what, what, what kind of laws exist and how are they enforced when it comes to these people? You know, that, that dinner scene is very revealing. Worf uses that very unfortunate argument with Bashir, which boils down to essentially, well, you're one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. And you can insert whatever marginalized <laughs> group you want to there. Right. 
not to break your train of thought here, but no, please. my difficulty with what was happening here is the prejudice that comes in play with those who do not measure up to the quote unquote, the, the Federation citizen. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand what the definition is anymore for these citizens. If they are genetically enhanced and uh, as children, you know, they, they, they suffer the ill effects of these, these illegal enhancements, then does the Federation just cast them aside and throw them into, for all intents and purposes, an asylum mm-hmm. because they no longer can be trusted to be well-adjusted members of Federation society? Is that what we are talking about here? And... Is that what Worf is saying to the point where he's caught in his own prejudice? Yeah. Well, that I, so I, I think there's a, a couple of different problematic ideas being explored here. And one is this question of, you know, what do we do with the, the people? And, and you can look at them as victims of this circumstance, which was... Uh, another very interesting angle to take here saying, well, the parents made this decision for this child. That child could not decide for themselves what was going to happen. And who knows where that comes in the process. That that might have been something that happened when they were very young, might have happened when they were in utero. We, we don't know. But that was one angle to look at is like, how are we dealing with the results of this? You know, you can say that the action of having somebody genetically enhanced is illegal, but that doesn't make the person who is the result of that, quote, illegal. So there's that issue that comes up here. Mm-hmm. And then, um, gosh, Worf again, if people like them are allowed to compete freely, then parents would feel pressured to have their children enhanced so they could keep up. You know, a very interesting idea if and when we get to a point that genetic manipulation of a human is that easy, does it create a kind of arms race? No, a a competition between the haves and the have-nots. And and can we look at it, you know, the same way that, say, we look at, like, steroids in sports and, and just say we're banning it? even if some people choose not to play by those same rules. Well, I mean, that's still under the impression of that this entire, the entire legality of genetic manipulation will somehow be lifted or, or worked around or be made easier to do. Because what Worf is saying here is like, well, you know, we're going to have an entire population of people that are going to be genetically altered to be superior because people can afford to. But, it still doesn't change the fact that there is a pretty severe restriction in place for genetic manipulation of which now I understand what Worf is saying when he says, if you can afford to do it, yeah, then you can skirt the, the legality of it. Obviously it happened to Bashir, but not everyone's going to be able to, and not everyone's going to be able to adjust as quickly as Bashir did because he did have a good doctor. Right. You know, yeah. he said that, you know, to his point. And, and again, you know, greatly, 
uh, increasing this chasm between the haves and the have-nots uh, uh, of mm-hmm. the future. You know, that's uh, and not to say that those things don't exist now with access to medical care, or certain services that the wealthy have an advantage. But here now we're saying in the 24th century, this will also be a thing that you could have people who have the means, who have the resources, or even just the connections to be able to do this. And the Bashirs got lucky, and the others not so much. Um, but here's here's the thing, John, mm-hmm. that, that still does not have um, at least a concrete definition of what federation finances can afford people. Right. If, yeah. if the federation, right, if you do not need money in the federation to use for these types of operations, then everyone should be able to access whatever they need to access, illegally or not, because what do they need money for? Yeah. Right. You're trying to I mean, you know, you do something illegal because you have the money to be able to pay somebody's exorbitant fees. That's going to they're going to, you know, extort you for that because they know it's illegal. Right. But yeah, if you don't have the demand, if you don't have the need, then there's no demand for that kind of fee. Yeah. It's just yeah. it's it's uh, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> O'Brien. Who? Oh, yeah. yeah O'Brien. <laughs> say, he, he has this line. We're not talking about excluding them, just limiting what they can do. Dude, do you even hear the words coming out of your mouth? <laughs> I mean, that that was in that dinner scene, that and of course Worf. The, those were the, the like the record scratch moments, you know, <laughs> that, I, that I, I wanted somebody to just stop and go, whoa, okay, okay. And, and Bashir to somehow maintain his composure here but uh uh dude you have to hear what you're saying but what's interesting is right before that in talking to jack bashir says there's a good reason we've been barred from certain professions which i just I, okay yes there was a eugenics war a few hundred years ago by this timeline but very interesting like almost a, a self-loathing coming out of bashir saying well you know, the, those things that would keep people like us down and keep people like us from achieving certain things, well, we should just be grateful for those because that's there to protect us too. That was uh, that was a, a challenging line to stomach. Well, I, to be honest with you, I actually like it that the chief spoke that line because, and I don't want to disparage the chief as a character, but he is a non-com. He is mm-hmm. a non-officer. And he does have the the luxury of being a part of this officer's circle. But he isn't in the quote-unquote educated level of these officers, educated diplomatically, educated culturally in that way. Right. So when he says something like that, he's, he's actually being the voice of kind of reason in a way because he's saying it from the layman's term. Now, I'm yeah, not saying yeah. that I agree with yeah, him. Right, he's just right. saying that, you know, he could have said it a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, palatably uh, but he just says hey you know what um what if we just you know kind of like monitor what they're doing i think is what he's getting at yeah, like, yeah. let them do what they want to do but you know kind of keep an eye on them yeah yeah right? no i i get it you, you can allow a character like o'brien to have that moment more so than you can allow a character like Worf. with Worf, it's like i i just want to grab him and say like okay dude you you know what you've been through right <laughs> you mm-hmm. you know the people that you've been around before and the good influences they were supposed to leave on you right okay Move on well, there is a certain sense of federation, quote unquote, privilege that's being addressed here, or or, or at least being right, uh, right, being 
being used as the catalyst for this conversation because they're all coming from a uh, from the standpoint of being the haves versus the have-nots. Seems like, well, of course that they're going to be problematic because they're part of this law that we passed, and we all know what happened with Khan in the eugenics war. Right. Right. But, yeah. But that's the stigma of all of this. The stigma is very damaging to people who didn't have the choice. They didn't have the choice of what happened to them, and now they're living with this this overarching prejudice and bigotry that's limiting them from being or fulfilling their their life, what they're capable of doing. Yeah. You would think the Federation would actually embrace that and try and incorporate them under the auspices of, of, you know, oversight committees and training and making sure that they don't get out of hand. But I think that the, the genetics, uh, the genetic supermen of Khan's era were specifically designed to be conquerors. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't specifically designed to be good at darts. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although that is one of the interesting things that comes up in this episode is that, okay, you can have, you can have intent with different kind of genetic modifications, but no science like that is 100%. So you're going to end up potentially with unintended side effects. And, and that's what we have here with these four. We have these unintended side effects. Bashir basically got exactly what his parents wanted, which is somebody who has an, an improved intellect um, and improved hand-eye coordination. Great. So that worked. Uh, okay, but but yeah. let's talk about the side effects, though, because okay, okay. So say Jack. Jack's a little manic. I get that. Mm-hmm. You know, he has mm-hmm. a he has a, a an aggressive disposition. It's not like his side effect is something that is like a third eye or you know a mutation in like you know a, a sixth finger. Right. L- Lauren, by all intents and purposes, she's just really sexy. Uh, I oh, okay, right. Uh, I, so, all right, bear with me here, because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> now, now I'm going to sidetrack us. Uh, we, yeah, we we need to talk about Lauren, um, and and I I don't uh, I I don't think this particularly needs to be a conversation about sexism or lack thereof in Star Trek or unintended sexism in Star Trek or whatever. But I will say that this is incredibly short sighted. Look, it is perfectly okay for Star Trek to have sexy or seductive characters. It is okay for our characters to have desires and operate in a world where there are adult and personal concerns. Um, you know, we think back to the uh, the party scene in You Are Cordially Invited. Uh, we were seeing a lot of uh, potential adult activity there. Hey, you leave Morn out of this. You're <laughs> doing what Morn does. <laughs> right, right. But but it just shows like, okay, there, there are actual desires in the 24th century too. This whole thing with Lauren was not it. And Lauren's superpower is, it just seems to be that she's sexy. And and they literally have her on a lounger for most of the show, no matter where she is. So does she travel with it? And and they barely ever have her just standing or sitting like a regular person. I mean, does she travel with her own lounge? Yeah, they're like, okay, so, so here's the deal, guys. We're gonna have this. Uh, you're gonna we're gonna take over a cargo room, get everything out of there. We'll put in a couple of beds, we're gonna do a chair, and then this lounger right in the middle of the room. Really, that's weird. Just trust us. That that's it needs to happen this way. Just right in the middle. Don't ask questions. Um, and but see, none of that ever really pays off. So, yeah, she's smart, 
but then the idea of somebody who thinks that everyone wants her, uh, but apparently nobody really does except for Jack, like none of that has any payoff. She, look, Lauren is played by a good and beautiful actor, but I just feel like they ran out of ideas for the character by the time they got to the script. It was like a one-line thing. You know, you have, uh, here's Jack's description, here's Serena's description, here's uh, Patrick's description, and then Lauren. Well, uh, well uh, she's, she's beautiful. She, she's in the middle of the room on a lounger. I, sorry, that, that was my mini rant. You were just about to go through all the characters. No, I, and, yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and I totally get what you're saying. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that they didn't play to each one of their abilities, side effects, if you will, yeah. as they call them. Each one of their abilities can be used to their advantage. Her, her uh, sultriness and her seductiveness could have manipulated people like pheromones yeah. if yeah. she knew how to use it that way or, or she was written to use it that way. But I guess that's like my, my big issue with the way that they were portrayed or at least labeled in this episode. They were supposed to have, they, they at least for all intents and purposes, they feel like they were mental patients that were brought to the station because they were genetically engineered and their side effect is that they have mental issues, but they don't. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you really right. kind of take a look at it, yeah. you know, like, like Patrick said to Bashir, he said, you know, if you told the truth, you could have lived with us at the Institute. Now, Patrick is just sweet. Yeah. You know, yeah. he just wants to belong. He just wants to have friends. And he's obviously he's very astute at understanding engineering. Yeah. You know, he's 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 very mentally capable of these these higher these higher processes. And then Jack said, you know, he's right. You know, they would have put you away. And Bashir said they don't put people away for being genetically engineered. But you are talking to people that they just put away for being genetically engineered. You're talking to four of them. Yes. Yes. So why would you write that? Yeah. They're they're not criminals. Right. Right. Yeah. They did put them away. They put them away in an institution. They are saying that they went to an institute. Yeah. An institution. So... If they don't put people away for being genetically engineered, then exactly what are Jack, Lauren, Patrick, and Serena doing in an institution? Yeah, I, see, I, I in a different life, I, I want to see Patrick working, uh, say, front of house at Cisco's restaurant. You know, he could He's, just yeah, he he could meet and greet guy, hanging out, talking to people about their food, making them feel good and welcome. You know, that's he. He doesn't need to be locked away. Yeah, I mean, we're not sure what happened with Serena. Serena obviously ha- is listening to everything. Yeah. She's observing everything, and she's calculating as she does. But that's just like um, a, a hyper uh, version of being antisocial. Yeah. That's not necessarily a, a, some type of like mental illness condition that they keep levying against these characters. I don't get that part of the episode yeah. where they treat them like basically like almost criminally insane. Right. Yeah. And putting them in an institution and saying that, oh, no, 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 they're genius, but they have mental issues. But that doesn't really come across. Right. I don't think. Right. So, John, I ask you this. (laughs) With their abilities, obviously, uh, in play here and crunching the numbers and looking over the scenarios and things of that nature. So Jack, Lauren and Patrick provide Cisco or actually provide Bashir with the first tactical analysis numbers that he can live with that Bashir can sell to him. He's like, these are great. You know, let's, mm-hmm. uh, let's get these three, you know, approved by the Admiralty so they can get more statistical data and a little bit more intelligence. And when they do that, they give him a second set of numbers that he doesn't like. And 
as much as Bashir tries to sell it on him, Cisco says, well, you know what? I like what you're saying, but we're going to do it my way. And that my way is going to cost all of these lives. It's going to basically discount all of your information. And as a tactical officer for Starfleet and head of this station, I can do that. Because why? <laughs> so... <laughs> Remember, he is. Uh, remember, he was the the, the the tactical attaché to Admiral Ross. Admiral Ross, right? Yep. You know, he he uh, you know he he gave him that responsibility to an entire wing mm-hmm. in the Alpha Quadrant, and tactical analysis and statistical numbers and support help inform these roles. But when push came to shove between him and Bashir, it was basically Cisco's way. Or the highway. Yeah. Over the number of 900 billion lives. My question to you, my question to the audience is, is this the Federation's mentality at this time in the 24th century? Fight an unwinnable war that will cost billions of lives, Federation lives, Federation resources, and fight and let whatever happens happen. I mean, what about negotiating? What about finding a way around the numbers if they are, in fact, inevitable? Why does Cisco continually push the narrative of let's fight and hope for the best, favor the bold? Yeah. that When the numbers are staring him in the face. Right. That, that gives me great worry and great pause about this because it, it seems like he's just driving toward inevitability as opposed to finding a better way, finding the alternative in any of this. This is almost, you know, the the way this is structured, it's sort of uh, like a, a vaguely Christmas carol thing. They've been visited by the ghosts of Christmas yet to come and shown this is what will happen. And we're waiting for that person to say, no, but I can change it. You kind of want the person at the top to be the person who says, no, we can change this. It, it should give us pause that it isn't that person. One thing could have changed the whole story of statistical probabilities, and that one thing is the infinite improbability drive. But maybe John and Norm have other ideas. Well, John, we've crunched a lot of numbers. And I know you're not the kind of person that would just summarily disavow those numbers or discount them in a way. Because you know how important statistics are, and especially with an episode called Statistical Probabilities. But how did this episode hold up for you after you've figured out all that was needed to be figured out? So I'll tell you this, you know, the immediate thing that I had in my head is the X-Men. And, you know, earlier in the show tonight, you made that distinction to say, like, those were sort of naturally occurring mutations, what we have here. Uh, we have people who are genetically uh, with, with direction, with purpose, genetically altered, and we're dealing with fallout there. But I, I think what's interesting is that we're still in either story. We're dealing with these questions of, um, you know, what is, quote unquote, normal, and how do we get over and past our prejudices about people who are different uh, when that difference feels threatening potentially. And with this, it's the threat of really the threat of information. So I I, I thought like this was a good basis for an exploration for Star Trek to do. And 
I have to say, I was very ambivalent about this episode on first watch. And then I think I grew to embrace it the more I watched it. I do think that Lauren is the weakest part. But again, it's not because of Hillary Shepard. It's just because of a, a shortage in what was assigned to those characters in scripting. And it's another one of those situations where you could probably go back and examine all of the would have, could have, should have, and come up with something a little better, a little more nuanced. But in summary, what they've done here in the best aspects of this episode is that they've used the most interesting aspects of their characters, in this case, Bashir, and crafted a story that, honestly, it has this high-concept science fiction angle, which, like I was just talking about, you know, with the, the X-Men and talking about genetic engineering and rights and et cetera, but then also addresses kind of contemporary issues like bigotry and prejudice. What do we do with people? How do we treat people who aren't like us? How do we get past this sort of knee-jerk reaction that there is some danger there? Um, and, and by looking at it that way, well, gosh, it, it, it's almost like using an old formula of Star Trek. <laughs> we take a, a high-minded, high-concept science idea and then we, we put it in the dramatic action of our characters. And then we also get to look at uh, an important social issue as well. I think it works. I think it was a good episode. There's just a lot of stuff we have to get past in this episode as well to make it hold up. We have to get past the weaknesses in our guest characters. And we really have to figure out what's going on with Cisco here and, and how we feel about uh, him by the end. You know, Bashir is the one who has the change. Bashir is the one who has this realization, and he is great in that moment. He understands why, and he's able to explain it to, well, particularly to, to Jack. It's too bad that he doesn't get across to others in that way as well. But I, I think it's good. I think it's a very strong episode. I, it's strong because its positive merits outweigh its negative issues and there are issues uh what about you norman well i felt very much like you at the at the start i wasn't really sure about this episode and i think maybe it's because at at first blush i wasn't really gelling with the jack character and you know i think tim ransom's a very good actor i just thought that jack's little you know mm, 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 <laughs> like his 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 persona was just a little too cartoonish for me, a little too aggravated, a little too over the top. But I did let his performance sell, and I kind of got past that. And I was able to see this episode, you know, after subsequent viewings, as we do for our show. You know, what the episode was really trying to say, and to be honest with you, as, as many critiques as I've levied against the show, it's my favorite episode of season six so far. Because for me, it returns the narrative of Star Trek back to a very basic and ethical story, like you were talking about. It's, it's the rights of these four individuals, Jack, Lauren, Patrick, and Serena. They all played a significant role as analysts, even though that their kind, if you will, their mutant kind, is in many ways still uh, held in a certain type of uh, bigoted regard, prejudiced regard. Mm -hmm. But they did service the Federation, and they gave them the information that Cisco needed to make calculated decisions up to a point. But I also love how, not necessarily how Khan plays into it from a space seed perspective, 
But how Spock's declaration of what he said about Khan echoes in this episode where Spock said superior ability breeds superior ambition. And we did hint at this a little bit when Bashir said, it's not our place to decide who lives and who dies. We're not gods. Jack said, maybe not, but we're the next best thing. And Bashir said, can you hear yourself? That's precisely the kind of thinking that makes people afraid of us. But the issue with, with that, how it's wrapped up in this episode, is that they try and couch it in a not-so-direct way of being a mentally ill person based on the genetic manipulation. Yeah. The, the issue with the mental instability or their side effects doesn't ring true for me because we don't really see their quirks, like Lauren's sultriness mm-hmm. and Serena's quietness and Jack's, obviously, his, his agitation. Mm-hmm. They're not really... They're not really written or performed as serious mental issues because of what happened with the genetic manipulation. Now, do they need oversight if they were ever reintroduced into Federation society? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they should be deprived of living a fuller life. And I wish they went into that a little bit yeah. more. Here, here. So that brings us to try to figure out what the messages are. And um, and like I said previous, and I think in our last segment, you know, it, it's an episode that you can slice in many ways and try to find many, many thoughts, maybe not, you know, a, a hit you on the head moment, but there are definitely a lot of ideas going on here. And I really came away with two that I thought were specifically important to how we examine this episode. So the first one is that I kept thinking about Cisco's line at dinner where he says uh, in regards to this idea of banning genetically engineered people from certain professions or certain areas of society. And he says it's not quite fair, but even so, it seemed like a good way to discourage genetic tampering. And what he means is that the solution of banning mutants from certain places or jobs would discourage parents to have their children enhanced. So what is the part that we're actually concerned about? Is it the genetic tampering or the unfair advantage that some people would have or the bad nature uh, of overambitious parents? What about the parents who genuinely want to quote unquote correct what could otherwise be a debilitating condition for a child? Are there exceptions for that? And this is partly why I like this episode a lot. There's less of a moral lesson about any of this and more the difficult contemplation about what the rules are really meant to do and whether or not they're actually working. Because we're dealing with the aftermath of these decisions in, I would say, a really inappropriate way particularly for our enlightened 24th century Federation and Starfleet. And we're doing so in the context of a story where the well-being of people is first and foremost. You know, and look, that's just the genetic manipulation plot. Now, now we get to move on to the other, <laughs> the other wonderfully fascinating part of this episode, which is another conundrum. Do you sit by and accept what looks like fate, or do you keep doing what you feel compelled to do because it's right? I freaking love this, and it's parallel to the message that we sometimes pick up from the Mirror Universe episodes. Yeah, the odds are against you, but at the end of the day, what is your 
personal and moral obligation to your principles and to the people around you. Will you give up? Or will you keep working for what is just? Because the attempt to do what is just is as important as the outcome. Bashir says regarding Serena, one person changed the course of history. And that is so freaking Star Trek, it hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm. What else? What else do we got here, Norman? Well, one of the things that I've been grappling with when I was trying to find the morals and meanings and messages is why is Bashir the exception here? Because he was better at hiding his abilities, because he was a doctor, you know, he went through the program of Starfleet Medical, because his family cut a deal. If Julian wasn't an officer, if he wasn't a doctor, if he wasn't protected by the Federation, would he have been put in the same institute as well? Much to Jack and Patrick's, you know, uh, dialogue earlier. The question is, how many more well-adjusted genetically engineered beings, and I say that with quotes, mm-hmm. are out there who are in fact using their abilities just enough, like Bashir has been doing, to fly under the radar but still have the advantages over other normal people, which is what you know O'Brien was saying before. So I think I landed with this. This entire episode proves how worthy that, say, Jack and Patrick and Serena and Lauren are actually – uh, to serve in Starfleet or to serve in the Federation. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Because under Bashir's care, they proved how valuable they mm-hmm. are. But the thing is, is that during this entire episode, all Starfleet was doing, or the Federation, let me make that distinction, mm-hmm. all the Federation was doing, and Cisco to some degree, were exploiting these talents, exploiting the talents of people who don't have the representation of being recognized by the very government that is using their talents indiscriminately. Yes, they, okay, let's be fair. They do turn at the end because that's just what Jack was leading them to do. Their superior ambition was, you know, leading him that path. But they did try and provide the right solution, even though it wasn't the optimal solution. And with proper support and oversight, don't you think that they could have become the valued members of the Federation that Starfleet needed to help them win this war? Uh, But in the end... No, I say absolutely. And that that is sort of one of those really uncomfortable parts of this episode is that you, you see and hear constantly how they have just been cast aside. Now, in the end for me, that what didn't really sit well was... Bashir, not betrayed, but he kind of turned a blind eye to his oath of do no harm because with the knowledge that he had and capitulating to Cisco's more fortune favors the bold mentality, he would rather trust in the chance of one person changing the course of the future. And that's a good point, John, that you made. But I don't understand why it has to be one or the other, why they have to be polarizing ideas. Because... I think there should have been at least a compromise between Bashir's data and Cisco's tactical analysis of that data. I'm not going to let him off the hook for that. I will yeah. not. No, I, and you should Yeah. Because they build his character up to be a tactician. So use that data to try and minimize these projected casualties instead of Cisco just overruling Bashir with, because I said so. I'm going to quote him. 
I don't, this is what Cisco says, I don't care if the odds are against us. If we're going to lose, then we're going to go down fighting so that when our descendants someday rise up against the Dominion, they'll know what they're made of. He's already accepting the fact that they will lose, but they're going to go down swinging. Does that make any sense to you? I keep forgetting that they write Cisco as being this brilliant tactician. And statistics are the, they're the information that inform tactics. So in the end, Cisco made the wrong decision and dismisses Bashir totally. And I'm having really, really tremendous difficulty with his choices as the leader of this crew. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we, we see Cisco make a big mistake, which is to not understand that the, the answer to that incomplete or maybe unpleasant information is more and better information rather than censoring or disregarding it outright. It's a really unfortunate characteristic to have in a leader who should be admirable in every way. It's, it's a bit of a disturbing thing to see. I mean, I understand that captains, obviously, they operate under a certain amount of pride, pride in their command, pride in understanding that they believe what is best for their crew, what is best for their command and their, you know, and uh, the people that are involved. But they always do so in a very measured way where they take all of the information in front of them and and uh, disseminate it and ingest it and internalize it and weigh every option and then make a measured decision with that pride as, say, a tiebreaker. Yeah. Saying, you know what, I understand what's going on, but I still have to make the command decision. It's my responsibility. This is, I think, the best course of action based on everything that I've seen. That's the kind of decision that I want Cisco to make, as opposed to, let's fly into a wormhole and yeah. see what happens. Yeah. This, because, uh, this was not it. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, the magnificent Ferengi. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Shabel. I hear you wondering, how do you get surprisingly complicated pants? Have a conversation with Garrick while he's letting out the waste. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.